Hosting for With the First Link on the Trek Geeks Podcast Network is brought to you by Fansets, creators of cool pins and memorabilia from your favorite franchises. Visit fansets.com and use code TREKGEEKS, all capital letters, for your exclusive 10% discount. Hello and welcome to With the First Link, the podcast that hopes to make our future as bright and as just as the one that we see in Star Trek The Next Generation. And we think that one way to do that is to recap and discuss the entire series, one episode at a time, doing our best to look at it all through an anti-oppression, pro-diversity, anti-racist lens. I'm Ruthie Cowper-Samoshi. And I'm Matthew Simone, and today we'll be talking about Up the Long Ladder. This episode was written by Melinda M. Snodgrass and directed by Winrich Colby. It first aired on May 20th, 1989. Before we get into our check-in, we have a special guest today, uh, my wonderful sister slash resident science expert, uh, Jake, also scientist, I guess. Jake Samoshi is joining us. Hi, hi, Jake. Hello. How are you? I am thrilled to be here. <laughs> I'm excited you're here too. I'm 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 excited that we get real science cred this way whenever you're here. So thank you. Yeah. I real like science. how whenever whenever there's a biology question on Star Trek, I get to be on the podcast. I enjoy that. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yes. Yes. You all may recall Jake from un un oh crap, what's it called? From Unnatural Selection, uh, which featured a an interview with Jake. So yeah. We're happy to have you here to answer all our questions about cloning and, <laughs> and how that works. I'll do my best. You're that kind of scientist, right? You you clone people, I think. No, no, I don't clone people. It is not legal in Canada to clone people. Oh, okay. Neither is it in the Federation. <laughs> I was thinking we actually, so there are a few science advisors for Star Trek, and one of them is Mohammed Noor, who, who is just biology. So it, it is... It, it is interesting that out of the two, like one of them is a physicist, like an astrophysicist, and the other one is just biology. So I think it makes sense that we have our own biologist who comes on the show when we need science help as well. <laughs> there we go. Exactly. Okay, let's get into the check-in topic. So for today's check-in, here's the question. If you were going on a long trip to, to a new world, so like a permanent trip, and let's let's say for the sake of this scenario that like, your material needs would be taken care of. So you're going to be fed. You're going to have clothes that fit. You're going to, all of that is taken care of. What kinds of things would you pack? Apparently I should pack more clones of myself. Yeah. Well, yes, that's <laughs> apparently how it how Am it I allowed to pack my friends? I feel like I would be lonely and I would want to bring my people <laughs> or at least a means of communicating with them. Like a space phone. Yeah. Or like a space internet connection. A subspace communicator situation. All right, that makes sense. I, I think it makes sense to me too, because like most of the time, this is why I only ever own laptops. I've, I've oh, never, yeah. I haven't owned a desktop since I moved out of my, my parents' house. And it's because that is my, like my whole connection to the world is on that computer. I can bring it around with me, but I can also create things with it and like do stuff with it. So that's basically anytime I ever go anywhere, it's kind of like me and my laptop in a backpack. So no spinning wheels, neither of you? I mean, am I going to have more space on this new planet than I currently have in my apartment? Because if so, I would <laughs> probably bring a spinning, spinning wheel. 
All right. That's fair. See, I, my mind, every time I tried to think of things I would bring, I kept just coming back to like, I'd probably want to bring my cat. So yeah. that would be my main thing. I'd bring my cat, cat food, some cat toys. What's a spinning what you- wheel? Uh, data goes on a whole explanation. Yeah, data, data explains <laughs> it to us. It's like, like a spinning what Sleeping wheel Beauty is... pricks her finger on. That's what I Okay, but Oh, it'd be from the episode. I see. <laughs> a spinning wheel is a is a device from like um pre-industrial times to spin wool into yarn. Oh, right, of course. Of course. Yeah, that's the one he's talking over Picard while Picard's trying to like figure out something on the computer. <laughs> yes. And I was paying attention yes. to what he was trying to say rather than what Data was trying to say, which is funny because that's what he was trying to do as well. <laughs> I'd just like to say this was a bit of a, um, you can see the difference between Jake and me, that first of all, Jake gave an actual explanation of what a spinning (laughs) wheel is, and I said it's the thing Sleeping Beauty picks her finger on, and then right before Jake said it was from pre-industrial times, I was about to say olden times. That's right, oldie times. (laughs) I mean, I'm not, I can't get more specific than that, and I'm sure that it, um, persisted into industrial times i don't know i would not want to be fact checked by a historian on that i would bring a i bring a camera because that's i i yeah. tend to document adventures as oh, yeah, you know that's nice and yeah. and uh so i bring my camera along as well and i want to take photos of things i i really actually i've got a whole stack of photos from northern british columbia that i still need to go through that was the last time i was on the road for an extended period of time and and they were beautiful the landscape yeah. was amazing i know ruthie said that our material needs would be taken care of, but I would stock up on high quality sports bras. Yeah. Like I would make sure I had like comfortable clothes. That's for sure. We're talking like, uh, this is like an interstellar journey though as well. Yeah. 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 Oh, can I bring my plants? Like all my house plants? I might want to bring my house plants. (laughs) Just like pass by near, like pass by stars and be like, get a little bit of sunlight. Get a little bit of sunlight. Well, there has to be some light on the ship. Yeah, I imagine there is, I would wither and die. So, you know, and then wherever we're going, there will be a sun. Yes. Presumably, yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's living on some rogue asteroid. (laughs) Pull over. This is only the closest stop for the next 20 light years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) All right, everybody take your bathroom break and we're off. Thanks, lone asteroid. All right, should we get into the episode? In this episode, an antiquated distress signal leads to two lost 22nd century Earth colonies, each facing doom in different ways, one by fire, the other by prolonged cloning. Prolonged cloning. I hate when it says that here happens. in the notes, it says discuss episode. Let's discuss. Let's, get, let's discuss. <laughs> so we start on the bridge. And it's a really weird opening that has absolutely nothing to do with the rest of the episode. But I honestly think it's my favorite part of the episode. This is a pattern. <laughs> this is what I've been telling you. There's so many yeah. of these episodes where it, it, the, this prolongs into B-plot. later seasons where like it's it's not even it's like a C plot and it's the main <laughs> opening and you don't really get into the main story until like after the commercial break or even like in this case, kind of halfway through the episode. But anyway. The, I mean, okay. I don't I don't know what we can call this like an A plot, B plot, C plot episode. Like, I think we need to use the word pro- plot really loosely here. Yeah. Well, the thing about this that is so funny to me is that is that the the I, we could almost even call this the A plot. The A plot and the B plot happen sequentially, not concurrently. <laughs> like this business with Warp is fully resolved before the yeah. next thing happens. Yeah, it's one thing and then the other thing. That's right. Yeah. So basically. Worf faints 
like some other stuff is happening while while he's fainting. So Picard asks Riker to come into the ready room and they listen to this signal and Riker's like, oh, that's an SOS. That he was able to figure this out in like two seconds. Apparently it took Starbase research hours to figure it out. Before we get into the conversation between Picard and Riker or yes. Worf, think, I just want to say I really love this little bit of business where Picard asked Riker to join him in the ready room and Riker points at Data oh, before yeah, I he goes that into too. the ready yeah. room and then Data goes to the command chair. They do that a lot and it just adds a little verisimilitude and it it just is so like, it just looks like a well-run organization, right? Like they don't need a lot of verbal communication. Data knows what's expected of him. Riker knows how to communicate it. It happens really efficiently. And I think in later seasons there's less of that pointing and it just happens yeah which is almost again like they've been working together for longer now so then they don't need that signaling but here they've yeah. only been working together a couple of years so they use it i really really like ugh, i love when they do that it's one of my favorite little things i like i don't know there's also a piece of it that like it's friendly yeah. Like it it shows a certain level of like trust and camaraderie as opposed to having to say, okay, data, you're on duty now. No, I I just found it really charming. So I wanted to I wanted to mention it before we race into this Riker is smarter than all of Starfleet research. <laughs> I I thought I knew the meaning of this, but I totally, as you were talking, definitely Googled verisimilitude just to make sure. <laughs> and were you right? No. I wasn't, but I'm oh. glad now I've learned. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so the computer says the signal was used by the European hegemony. I said hegemony. I will. Like, oh, I said hegemony. I say hegemony as well. Hegemony. hegemony I've never hegemony. heard it with the hard hegemony. G. Yeah. They both did it though. Yeah. yeah. I thought at first I thought it was like a, I don't know, British thing. So Patrick Stewart said it that way, but then Riker did too. Basically it's a, uh, 22nd century alliance which sounds kind of like the european union which happened well before the 22nd century but it was part of the first stirrings of world government and so there are some lost ships that are not accounted for in star in in any of the federation's records that that went from earth and they are now in the ficus sector and they're in trouble they're sending out an sos this would actually predate the formation of the EU in real life as well. This episode did, yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was wondering why the European hegemony was, like why they didn't mention the EU or, or the UN as the precursor world to government. world government. But if the EU didn't exist yet, that does yeah, explain that's why. it. The, yeah. I think the talkings of it probably would have been around this time. So maybe that's why. It's kind of maybe a nod to like current day events that mm, were going on. Yeah, time. maybe, maybe. Yeah. So the computer can't find any ships that are launched from Earth during that time during the de uh, for that destination near the ficus sector. So back on the bridge, Picard and Riker enter and find several crew members around Worf. He's just lying on the floor. He has fainted. And so, and Data's like, yeah, he just, he just collapsed. And he calls Dr. Pulaski to the bridge. And now we are into the credits. And we get a um, captain's okay. log <laughs> that they are on their way to investigate this mysterious signal. And Worf is in sickbay. Worf is just like, I didn't faint. No, no, Worf, <laughs> You're not allowed to use that not, word. Klingons do not faint. But I kind of like that Pulaski, part of the reason that she's worried is that 
Worf is right. Klingons don't faint. So yes. this is actually, this must be something serious. So for our resident biologist, what happened? What happened instead? I mean, he fainted is what happened. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought he suffered a dramatic drop in blood pressure because his blood glucose level dropped and there was deficient <laughs> blood flow resulting from circulatory <laughs> failure. In other words, he cold up his toes and lay unconscious on the floor. Yes, that's just... She's a little <laughs> condescending and like patronizing about that but it's true that seems to be what happened yeah i mean Worf a little bit deserves it i don't know i like pulaski in this in this moment yeah she's great in this whole episode she is yeah Yeah. i like her in this episode it turns out that Worf has what is called rapach ingor which is a klingon childhood ailment so Worf is all embarrassed and he asks how Riker would feel if he got the measles So I don't, there are three things. So there are two things I want to say about that. Please. One is, why would it be embarrassing to get the measles? I don't really understand why that's I'd be angry if I got the measles because it means that people aren't vaccinating as measles. Someone wasn't vaccinated. (laughs) The other thing about this, and this is like a little bit deep in the weeds of the the biology and epidemiology of it, and you may not want to keep this in the episode, but most childhood illnesses, at least here on earth now, are infectious diseases, right? Things like measles, mumps, rubella, chicken pox. They're infectious diseases that give lasting immunity. So you get them once and then you're immune to them and then you don't get them again. You don't get them because you're a child. You get them within the first few years of being in a population where you're exposed to them. So if you don't have them as a child and then you go somewhere, you'll get them as an adult. My question is, who did Worf get this Ruppach Ingor from? Like, why is he getting who where's the other Klingon that gave it to what is there a Klingon child running around who has it who gave it to him right like childhood illnesses are not you don't just develop them on their own (laughs) maybe got them from one of those Klingons in like the previous season and it has like a long incubation period (laughs) and if it's not an infectious disease if there, there are other things that like tend to arise in childhood then if those things Unrise, un- arise unusually in an adult that would make you want to like do more testing like there's something physiologically going on with this adult that you want to know about so anyway i just object to the fact that they're like oh it's a childhood disease we're not worried about it yeah and, and measles even wasn't that common at this time at the show was written so i always felt i felt like maybe they're they were trying to go more for like chicken pox and that was probably what was in the script but then the makeup people were like well then we have to figure out what Klingon chicken pox looks like so just write it in his measles and then that's what they did and make him faint and make him faint yeah do people faint from measles I don't actually know what the symptoms of measles are yeah yeah we don't know because we've been vaccinated and we we're not supposed to get that anymore that anyway But the, the important part here is that Picard calls down to the sick bay and in an unusual moment of <laughs> confidentiality that we do not usually see in Star Trek med bays, uh, Pulaski covers for him and says that he was doing a Klingon ritual involving fasting, just forgot to like decrease his physical activity and Worf really appreciates her discretion. And she yeah. like crosses her fingers while she's saying it like, oh, I feel so bad about lying instead of yeah, like... like- Doctor patient confidentiality is yeah. a thing. <laughs> That's a good point. There yeah. is none of that here. Like it's there, she keeps it confidential, but she doesn't say, I can't tell you that he's my patient. She just fully lies. Yeah. This is the first time <laughs> I've ever tried to do this. Fingers crossed. Yeah. So then we go to the ready room 
again, this like makes no sense to me. So there's no record of the of any ship leaving for the ficus sector, but there he's he's like, but there would still be a manifest, but where are they? This makes no sense. I don't under like the the manifest would be a record. Where is the where is the where is the manifest stored? That they don't than... also have the record. I don't know. What does that mean? Like unless there's like vendors of that era, like the people who sold them the various computers and spinning wheels and whatever. But it, it just doesn't make any sense. Like the manifest should be stored with the record of the ship leaving. That's where the manifest is. <laughs> The important thing is it leads to Picard finding the SS Mariposa, which then brings us the following exchange. I love it so much. Mariposa, the Spanish word for butterfly. Thank you, Data. I thought it might be significant, sir. It doesn't appear to be Data. No, sir. It's so funny. So funny. I love it. There's And that's like, there are so many things in this episode that you think are going to be significant and they're just not. Like we're fainting. This is not significant to the episode at all. So Picard starts reading the manifest, which includes a mix of this like newer technology, computers and satellites, and then older technology like spinning wheels and farm animals. And Data starts defining a spinning wheel, which clearly I wasn't paying attention to. As access <laughs> from his eternal dictionary, I guess. While Picard, I is guess done. so. Yeah, he just like has a database of things that he's not consciously aware of, so he has to like go pull them out. When I love he that, I love know. that so much. Yeah. But I so, really like the way he's just like talking to himself about what a spinning wheel is. Which yeah. It's like, can we focus up here, buddy? It's so funny. So Data kind of speculates that they might have been planning for the worst. And he mentions this Liam Deegan, who was the founder of the Neo-Transcendentalists, who advocated for a return to simpler times, living in harmony with nature. I feel like this is something that comes up a few times in Star Trek, like this idea of technology is actually the the source of all of our problems and we should yeah. go back and to... also this like it says Picard wonders why they had computers and it's also interesting to me that there's this like contrastingness of if you're going to live in harmony with nature you can't have computers right um, and if you're going to use computers of... you can't use a spinning wheel as well right instead of like being able to be selective about the technology that you use and mindful about its impacts on nature without rejecting it wholesale yeah, there's no like in between. It, it's like the, it's not really thought out super no. well. And later, I mean, we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves here, but also like the they don't know what computers are when we finally meet them, which is weird right. because they would have had to, have, I guess, consciously rejected that technology. So it's not like they wouldn't know. Maybe after right. all this time, they don't well, know. I, don't. I understood that as like as like descending from this neo trans neo transcendentalist right. or whatever thing of like they started a colony where they wouldn't have computers so they're like so 10 none of their generations kids learned in about at this it. point yeah. yeah anyway we get to my favorite scene where that we're in sick bay and wharf brings this tray with two cups and flowers and he is performing the klingon tea ceremony to thank pulaski for keeping his embarrassing secret of having rapach in gore and Pulaski's so honored and she knows about the ceremony, but she's not a Klingon and she has never learned about its mysteries. The tea is a test of bravery among Klingons because it's really bad for them and it, <laughs> it, it, will, it will kill her. So it's a yeah. it's, I love that. That's the coup. It's like such a great gesture because he's like, I want to do this with you, but I'm the only one who's going to drink the tea because if you <laughs> do it, you'll die. But he still brings it out anyway, which is quite nice. 
I think yeah. it is. And I like also what he says that he says, though this tea being really bad for them, drinking it together, it's a reminder that death is an experience best shared. Like, like the, the tea. tea. Yeah. yeah. And I then like and then Pulaski says that she doesn't realize Worf, she didn't realize Worf was a romantic. Yeah, he is a romantic. Is, I like yeah. this depiction of him that he's not just this like macho security guy he is that but he is also and he says it that it is among the klingons that love poetry achieves its fullest flower and we learn later like he loves klingon opera you know he's just a just a well-rounded guy i do i do want to just mention and i do love this scene i think it's a very sweet scene it does a little bit smack of orientalism right it like yeah alludes to you know japanese tea ceremonies or whatever without presumably um you know like really engaging with that source yeah. material yeah that is a good point it, it is for sure there is exoticizing of these like tea ceremonies that are actually things that happen on earth as well this is a really nice gesture here where Pulaski's like, wait, I can participate in the tears ceremony. So she's like, she walks out off scene and then comes back and she has this hypo spray and she injects herself and it's an antidote. So she could actually consume the tea without dying. So they're able to drink it together. And then Pulaski tells Worf, quote me some of that love poetry. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. And then they cut away before he does, which makes me very sad. <laughs> yeah, I could have just, that could have just been the rest of the episode. I would have been totally cool with that. It's just, he just starts going on about poetry for like 30 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. No, instead, we have to arrive at the FICA sector where Data says that the system's sun is having a lot of flare activity. And apparently, there was like a deleted scene at one point where we find out that there are satellites that the, I don't know, pr progenitors of this colony installed satellites to uh, for safety reasons. And that's what triggered the SOS that got sent out is this this solar flare activity. We see like a, a flary sun in the distance. It's a very screen. cool visual. Yeah. Yeah. I that's, like the visual. That's happening to our sun right now. It is. Yeah, we have it's this big, cool. giant, super flare thing going on in our sun. And there's been like, I've been seeing people post cool, like Northern Light videos from all over the world. Yeah, apparently I saw some people post a picture of the Northern Lights from like just outside Guelph, Ontario. Amazing. Which, yeah, like our, where you can't really, can't usually see them. Yeah, our non-Southern Ontario listeners is like not very far north at all. No, I was trying to make a joke, but it's not. It's not working. Out. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was uh, like, what's the, the like middle to northern lights? <laughs> Didn't work. It's like Didn't work. Uh, equatorial northern equatorial lights. lights. Equatorial lights. Yeah, no, it's northern coming. Uh, it goes lights. more southernly. I we've been I've been looking out for them here, but it's been so cloudy in Vancouver that mm. we haven't really had yeah. a big opportunity. But yeah, anyways, so yes, is... there's there's big flares going on. The system sun is having flare activity. And they find this Class M planet. They detect life forms below the surface, but get no response to their hails. Yeah, it turns so out... So this was confusing to me. It says they're 30 meters below the surface. And I was like, do they live there? Is that just where the... Why are they below... Like, I thought they, they went they there to escape have... the solar flares. But how do they know about the solar flares? Like, they don't have maybe... computers. Maybe they can see all these northern lights and they're like, what is that? And so they dug hide. really I don't know. deep. Who knows? They yeah, never mentioned it. 
nothing yeah, in this episode is fully explained. Like yeah. nothing. They bring up so many things and then they're like, just so you know, that's how it is. Will we elaborate? No. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. they're in caverns for some reason. To, yes, to escape the flares, presumably. Presumably. But they can't, the Enterprise can't communicate with them because the planet seems to have no artificial power source. So no communication system. And they're like, okay, well, we need to evacuate this planet because of this, because of these flares. And Troy is like, okay, but we can't just like beam them up because they've been isolated for 30 years. If they get, just get beamed up onto a starship, that's, that's going to scare them. 300 years. 300 years. Did I say three years? You said 30. 30 years. But we have all the variations of that number now. So there we go. Yeah, it's an order of magnitude <laughs> wrong, but yes, three hundred years. So they can't—you can't just beam people off a planet because that's that's called alien abduction. It turns out. <laughs> oh yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Well, technically not. They're still—they're all they're humans, so it wouldn't be alien abduction. <laughs> it's just kidnapping. Yeah. Just kidnapping. Just kidnapping. Uh, so Riker beams down to prepare them for evacuations, and then he comes up over the comms and says that there's roughly two hundred people on the planet. They're willing to leave. But there is a problem, and Picard's just like, I don't want to hear about it. Like, just let's just <laughs> this, get them on board. This part only exists to set up the joke of Picard hearing the farm animals. That is exactly <laughs> yeah. what that is. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly. the only reason. Picard is never like, no, no, Riker, give me less information. <laughs> O'Brien, ironically, as the like Irish crew member, beats yeah. them on board, and it includes about seven people. Here's the thing, like. Why did all the hay beam up with all of them? Like, did we need that? I mean, that's obviously just also trying to set up the joke. Yeah. For the aesthetic. Just the, yeah, that's just all, that's all it was. And Ruthie, you did, you did some digging here about how Cole Media actually felt about this episode. Yeah. Apparently he wasn't happy with it. <laughs> Surprise. Um, not talking. Yeah. And also like, I looked up the two, um, the two people who we hear speak with Irish accents from what I could tell, neither of them is Irish. They're both English. Yeah, that's no. So, surprise. yeah. So there, and there is an episode uh, in Deep Space Nine where <clears throat> there was supposed to be a leprechaun character. Oh my god! And they switched it to Rumpelstiltskin because oh, because Cole Meany was like, no, we're not going to have a leprechaun in this show. Like he couldn't really at this point in this show. He was a relatively minor character. He didn't have much sway. I doubt. Like yeah. I don't think so. So he couldn't really do anything about it, but he was like, no, please do not depict my people this way. Yeah. I mean, you could hardly blame him for being upset. This dude's an absolute caricature. For sure. I also like how these people seem to come with their own theme music because when we hear yes, over I'm the like... comms to the bridge, all the noises, the music is also playing and it really sounds like Picard can hear that music over the communicator. I really do enjoy how every time we see them, it's like fiddles and concertina in the background. <laughs> so, yeah, it's so stereotypical. It is. It is. But it's, I don't know, I, I, I just love traditional Irish music. So I personally am like, yay. <laughs> you just like hearing the music. I just like the music. That might be actually contributing. We discussed um, before we started recording, I think, we discussed uh, how, despite the fact that this episode is really objectively not very good on any measure it is one of my favorites i love it it makes me very happy and i wonder if just the the fiddles are part of it because i just love fiddles yeah yeah jake loves farm animals and fiddles and chaos 
sort of generally. Especially on the Enterprise. I love when the, the Enterprise is such a tightly run ship, and I love when there's just a bit of chaos. <laughs> so O'Brien's like, okay, Picard, you're you're going to have to come to the transporter room. So Picard and Worf kind of, they approach the transporter room, and a chicken flies out the door, followed by a very adorable small child taking this chicken. Just All toothy grinned. A lovely bit of yeah. comedy there. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, there is the guy who plays this, we find out his name <laughs> is Danilo Odell. It He absolutely is a caricature, like not, not disputing that in the slightest. He's very good at facial expressions and sounds and, and voices. Like he... It's not a great thing that he's doing, but he is doing it well. Yeah, I would I say. Agree. Danilo Odell is at first like ready to tell Picard off because he's like, oh, you're just making decisions for me and my people without checking in with us. And then he like notices Worf and he's like, oh, I don't suppose security is much of a problem for you. Danilo is right. And that that is a theme that goes through this whole episode. It's really decisions being made for entire societies without really their consent. But absolutely. Yeah, yeah. it's totally it's very like, yeah, no, it's not. It's not. Well, nothing in this episode feels like well thought out or no, it's it's frustrating. Yeah, but they couldn't leave their animals to die, which is true. I wouldn't want to leave my animals to die either. Exactly. Yeah, of course. So Picard is like, okay, take all of this and beam everyone to cargo hold seven. How many cargo holds could there be on the Enterprise? <laughs> big ship, Matthew. I just, yeah. yeah, apparently the big ship. <laughs> I'll have is. to refer back to the track technical manual. I was under the impression that you were the one with the specs and diagrams. <laughs> uh, yeah, usually I am, but um, but I'm pretty sure there isn't a cargo hold seven. I, I have to go back and check. This Maybe might... there's there's cargo hold seven, but not all of one to six. Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> I, I think this might be before the technical manual was published. And so some of these internal details of the Enterprise may have not been like solidified yet. Yeah. We also find out as Picard and Worf are trying to leave, we find out that Danilo Odell has a daughter who is going to come up. He wants Picard to consider marrying her. Uh, that's not going to happen. But, you know, we find out she ha- he has a daughter. Worf has to intimidate him to get him to go away. He's like, no. Yeah. yeah. So we go to the observation lounge. The total is 223 people, but we've got two more who are going to be born soon. And they're talking about they're going to head to the nearest star base, but then we hear an alarm going off and they realize it is these people because there's a fire in Cargo Hold 7. And these people are called the Bringloidy, which is apparently the Irish word for dreams. So oh, I didn't know that. I don't know. That's kind of nice, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I was curious what you two thought of this fire suppression system, which is that basically the computer detects a fire and a force field and just like opens a force field over it. Yes, and that that it's talked about in this episode, and that is one thing that is mentioned in the Star Trek technical manual, but uh, the system seems to work only with respect to dramatic context. <laughs> I mean, like if the, if it's plot necessary to like yeah, have a fire, it doesn't Yeah, because there are many times that there's lots of fire on starships in Star Trek, and that system doesn't seem to, to work. So it will snuff out people trying to make a distillery, but if there's like actual... <laughs> plasma fire or whatever nothing smothering is a legitimate currently used fire suppression technique right i mean it's how even just like a regular fire extinguisher works but 
also in big rooms like in a lot of museum warehouses or whatever where you know they have stuff that's extremely valuable and extremely prone to fire damage or susceptible to fire damage the fire suppression systems basically are big pumps that clear all the air out of the room inside of 30 seconds and if you don't get out of the room when those doors start coming down you will suffocate and die oh yeah. really oh yeah that feels oh, really yeah. dangerous like i was thinking about this what if one of these poor children had like stumbled into the fire right at the moment that the force field had come down right wouldn't that wouldn't that child then die yeah well that's what they the, that's a wharf suggests too yeah yeah <laughs> it's one of those rare situations where like the enterprise is actually acting like a spaceship like when you're in space fire is such an emergency that it is okay to just let the person in the room with the fire die like you will lose the whole ship if you don't and this comes up in all sorts of sci- like this comes up in the expanse in Battlestar Galactica all sorts of situations where for dramatic effect right someone has to be sacrificed because the fire has to be contained yeah that's like the opening of bsg they vent a whole bunch of people directly into yeah. space oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah yep that's the, um, that would have been a short episode in this case <laughs> The only thing, the only thing about it that surprises me is that Star Trek did it because Star Trek doesn't usually like bow to the realities of space travel in that way. That's right, artificial gravity. Like if we're talking about um, these fire suppression systems in museums, how long is the air not in the room for? Like, you can survive for a little while without air. I don't right? know. They yeah, sometimes also pump um, like different gases, like um, yeah. in, like no, like into the room. That's like that. What is it called? A halon system or something? But they'll pump yeah. like uh, 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 like a, a a fire suppressing gas into the like room, like a non flammable yeah. gas. Like replace replace the oxygen. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So the the point is, there's no oxygen, right? That's no what oxygen. is yeah. dangerous <laughs> That's for the, the person, <laughs> but also puts the fire out. Yes. I mean, if there's a child, like if it's a small fire and it's a small area then maybe the fire goes out before the child suffocates. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Well, luckily, we didn't find out this time. And yeah, you're right, Matt. Like in all the episodes that I've seen where there's a child near a fire, the fire suppression system seems to... Yeah, like Alexander. He's like literally yeah. in a burning classroom. <laughs> and they don't turn off the gravity or suck the air out of the room. Two things they could have done to get him underneath, out from underneath a, uh, like a piece of metal that is burning. And you're like, okay. <laughs> Back to this episode, which I mean, has its own problems. So we we meet now Danilo Odell's daughter Brenna, and she is so angry. I love how angry she is at just everything in this episode. Like I I get it. She has been just moved from her planet onto this other ship. She tries to cook food. The fire just goes out. Like. She's yeah, she's like, looking at all the, the practical elements here that need to get done and happen. And she makes several comments about the fact that, like, men will make all these decisions, but women are the ones that have to actually make it all work properly. Yeah, and she's not, like, I think she's totally right. In, in, especially in the context of this episode. Well, it's, yeah, it's for a sure. a lot of men making decisions uh, around tables, yeah. Yeah, and also, like, yeah. she says, you haven't offered us anything to eat. Like, come on, Captain. 223 people have just come onto your ship and you're not going to, like, show them how to use the replicators. That is surprising to me, honestly. Like, that is... That, that doesn't seem like... No, that's every, not how Every they other act. time, 
every other time they bring people on the ship, the first thing they do is show them how the replicator works. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. but they're, time, like they're like diplomats and fancy and stuff. I guess. I just want to make a comment about her outfit, partly because I sometimes like talking about wardrobe in Star Trek, but also because there's something really specific about this outfit. So she is wearing this like relatively tight lacy red top that underneath you can, if you look closely, you can see a kind of greenish shirt. And then she's got a long flowing red skirt over several layers of green. And it is done in such a way that the red, the shade of green, it doesn't, I, the way I feel like if you're a person who is familiar with Christmas, I'm, probably sounds very Christmassy. It's not because it's a different shade of green. But anyway, that's what she's wearing. She's got a tight red top over a greenish top and then this long red skirt over several layers of green skirts i just let's just put a pin in that for later really it's a really nice outfit i really like it yeah yeah i like what she's what i I don't like is riker's facial expression when he encounters her yeah like every time there's a pretty lady riker's like i have forgotten everything about everything other than how pretty this lady are, is. He looks a little and too excited, yeah. So it's just like, it's okay to let pretty women be people, Riker. Like, she's saying something, man. Yeah. I, I hate this thing about Riker, that every time there's a pretty lady or anyone who might appear to be a pretty lady in his vicinity, he's like, I have one thought in my head and it is how pretty this lady is and then all he has to do is stand there and then her demeanor like entirely changes yeah he just just stands there looking yeah Yeah. he's like listen this is season two and i have a beard now okay (laughs) (laughs) this is how this works beard does not excuse the facial expression i'm sorry he does have a beard now though it is true it does yeah so there is this short little exchange that apparently was not scripted apparently patrick stewart just started laughing and so that part where he says you just have to bow to the absurd apparently that was just him talking and they left it in it's like this show is never going to get renewed for a third season given yeah the quality of some of the episodes in the first two seasons it is impressive they got a third one did he say that for a while he didn't even like unpack his stuff i think for the the whole first season patrick stewart kept all his stuff from england in a suitcase Picard and Worf leave the cargo hold. Riker's like, I'm going to stay behind to help. Picard's like, yeah, I bet you want to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Riker tells Brenna, Brenna O'Dell, the Danilo's daughter, that she doesn't have to clean because the ship is going to clean itself. And she's like, oh, well, good for the bloody ship then. (laughs) I really do enjoy this like moment of Star Trek has eliminated sexism by making computers do the cleaning. (laughs) (laughs) i hadn't thought of it like that also is she cleaning it was hard to tell she's kind of like moving hay around in circles i know yeah then unfortunately the music changes brenna asks Riker where she can wash her feet and Riker says that as first officer he feels that it's his responsibility to show her all of the amenities I don't so, know why he wouldn't show everybody the showers, but <laughs> I well, wonder this is why. the thing, right? Is that this exchange makes it clear that he knows exactly what she's talking about. Because otherwise he would just be like, shower, here you yeah. go. Yeah. Right? <laughs> he wouldn't bring her to his quarters as if there are no other showers on the ship. 
Maybe there aren't. Yeah. Maybe he's got the only one. I don't know. <laughs> Possible. Every morning, everyone just like lines up lines outside of Riker's corner. Like... Yeah, it's like a lineup. Yeah. Worf and Picard leave Riker to do this. Worf comments that she is like a Klingon woman, by which I guess he means assertive. And uh, <laughs> then Danilo Odell, her dad, catches up with them and asks if they ever encountered the other colony. Other Worf colony? And- yeah, Worf and Picard look at each other like, what? Yeah, so then we get the captain's log, captain's and log. Picard is like, so now the other colony has the computers. Right. <laughs> and they've so basically- So this explains the weird cargo. Yes, they had computers and spinning wheels because they were two different groups. I like how the writers sat down and they're like, how do we make a distinction between these two colonies? They're like, uh, computers and <laughs> I guess wheels. animals? Like, it's just- <laughs> Uh, and again, just really hilarious, the idea that you can't have both, right? That there's no right, yeah. There's no future where you can have spinning wheels and computers. No. Nope. As if we don't have them now. You can pick one and yeah. stick with it. So then we enter Riker's quarters. And here is why I wanted to talk about the outfit. So Brenna is now wearing, she's taken off her red skirt and top. And she's just wearing green, but her top is like this crop top so good. sweater. It's like a thick cable knit sweater. It's so chunky. And it just like <laughs> barely comes down to like the bra line. Yeah. But like there's no way she was wearing that chunky sweater under this delicate tight lace top. So that means before washing her feet, she got changed. I love this chunky cable knit crop top. It is so good and weird. And I I wish I had knit it. (laughs) Jake, I believe the way you described it before to me was, we have to make her hot, but also Irish. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Did I say that? We'll show off her midriff, but with a cable knit sweater. With a cable knit sweater. That's That's right, yeah. I could still go fishing if I wanted to. I'd still be warm enough. She's like tidying up Riker's quarters, which it's something that makes me stressed because the idea of someone just coming over to my house and starting to. (laughs) I think she's making a point. Uh, Yeah. But then she also says that she still hasn't been shown where to wash her feet and lifts up her skirt slightly to illustrate. He's like, these are my feet. (laughs) Yeah. And Riker just like literally points at the bathroom and he's like, there, go in there. Yeah, he's still not. Yeah. I was like, really? Have you not read the clues? That it doesn't really make any sense, as you pointed no. out, Jake. At this point, like, yeah. why would he have directed her to his quarters already? Yeah. So anyway, then she takes off her top skirt, and that's when Riker realizes that it's not actual foot washing. <laughs> she literally she starts to getting. She's at a stranger's quarters, and she literally starts getting undressed at him, <laughs> having, <laughs> and she doesn't like. So far, she doesn't know that he's interested. She thinks he's not interested. And she's like, what if I get naked? Maybe that will help. And it does. And it does, unfortunately. It does. This whole thing is frankly absurd. I want to put a pin in it for later, but I just want to put a pin in the, like, she aggressively hits on Riker thing. As a young person, now that I'm older, I think back on some of the things that I learned about how relationships and interpersonal relationships and romance work. Uh, from shows like this and then I'm like I wonder if any of the writers who wrote this stuff actually had any experience with real romance or interpersonal (laughs) relationships themselves when they wrote this stuff yeah women just take off their skirt right when they're interested that's how you know that's how you know know. and this is 
the writer on this episode is a woman, right? Yes. Yeah, but, you know, episodes get changed after they get written. I yep. think actually I I think I read somewhere that that um this changed a lot from her original vision. Yeah, cuz she yeah. also wrote she wrote Measure of a Man. Yeah. That's, you know, oh, which is okay. like it's a very different on. episode. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh anyway, so Danilo tells Worf that they're brewing was it poteen? Is that what po- it was? Pochine, I think pochine. it's pronounced. He pronounces yeah. it pochine, but it, pochine. the captions spell it P-O-T-E-E-N. P-O-T-E-N so. yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, and uh, they need to heat it, but of course the ship keeps putting out the fire, so this is a chance for Worf to bond with him over actual alcohol from the replicators, which there seems to go back and forth as to whether or not is actually available, because there's always the, there's the, the maybe we haven't been, have we been, yeah, have we been introduced to Synthahol yet? Well, he, he kind of mentions it here, but I don't know if yeah. we, we've found it before. So one thing that I found really funny about this exchange is that Worf shows up, be like, you wanted something, and sees them, you know, they've put together this still, and he, like, looks the machine up and down and smiles to himself like he clearly knows what it is. He's like, <laughs> I know what's happening here. Yeah. They're talking about Like, Worf, Worf knows what a still is. And he's like, we can, I can solve that problem for you without setting fire to anything. At first, he just orders whiskey, and he's not happy with it. He says it has no bite. But then Worf orders him Chacha Tuluth. I probably said that wrong. Sorry, nice. Klingons. My Klingon is not good. Uh, which is apparently Klingon fire whiskey. You can, like, see the smoke coming out of his ears <laughs> and, like, the fire coming out of his mouth. He he calls it, what does he call it? Like, a wee drop of the creature. He is He's a fan. He's a fan. And Brenda, of course, is not very happy about this, that he's drinking <laughs> drunk because there's stuff that he needs to do. Already drunk. Like, he's had one <laughs> sip. It has not had a chance to, like, like, it's barely hit his stomach, let alone traverse into his blood system. And he's, like, already <laughs> That's drunk. Cling on fire whiskey for Fire you. whiskey. So Pulaski wants to send the children to school from the yeah. colony and, with, and have them integrate or mix with the Enterprise's children. Brenda thinks it's a good idea. So tells him to go. He's like, go. She's like, go handle this. And he kind of stumbles off. <laughs> I kind of like that because like these are descendants of the neo-transcendentalists, I think. But they're not at this point. They're not like, no, we don't want to learn from anyone else. Like they seem very happy to learn from people who do use computers and don't live in harmony with nature. Yeah, it's like it's like that point earlier was just given it was almost like a throwaway just to have a reason why they are in this state of existence but they seem to have no connection to that philosophy anymore it's like no no no, we have to cook our own food we don't believe in these food terminals like don't help us with any of this stuff we don't want to know your knowledge it's they don't have any of that it doesn't no they're happy to like cool yeah they're like what this machine gives me fire whiskey well (laughs) if they had cared about that sort of stuff if there had been resistance to using modern technology then the episode would have had to be about something interesting and not about what (laughs) we still we're getting to the interesting part we're just not there yet we have to wait two Uh, minutes into the episode interesting is a strong word first we just have to hear Worf ask Brenna if she has ever considered a career in security which I did like her response that's a much better way to hit on her than just stare with a creepy <laughs> smile on your face <laughs> yeah no I think I think that's Worf she and Worf I think could get along really well yeah. uh, but she says she's like well if it's anything like babysitting I'm an authority <laughs> okay now we're at the new planet 
we meet Wilson Granger. He's got like the most confused look on his face when Picard hails him. Yeah, he's, he's the prime minister of Mariposa. I, this is one of those times, Ruthie, you and I have talked about this a few times, where because of a plot of an episode, I tend to avoid the episode. But then as a yeah. result, there's like episodes that I remember watching, but I don't know where they are. Yes. And this is one of them. I'm like, oh, this is that clone episode. But I completely yeah, same. forgot I... that it's connected to this other episode, which I typically don't watch. Totally. I also had, I was like, oh, this is the one with clones. I remember being like intrigued because I think this episode was the first time I'd ever in my life heard about clones. Hmm. It's also such like a, it's such a tonal shift. Like the contrast and tone from the first half to the second half of this episode is so all over the place. We move really quickly from like comedic goats on the, on the, on the spaceship to Okay, we're going to talk some hardcore eugenics now, guys, and no one's going to admit that's what we're doing. Yeah, yeah. and abduct you and steal your genetic material. Yeah. You're like, oh, earlier we had chickens flying around in the hall. Like, okay. <laughs> it's very, yeah, the tone, yeah, weird tonal tonal shifts. So basically, Picard is like, uh, the only reason we haven't been in contact with you before is that we, you got lost in the bureaucracy. So, but we're here now and we want to renew ties. Three centuries late, but hey, but we're here. How's it going? Imagine losing an entire colony in, bureau- in bureaucracy. That's gonna be some terrible record keeping. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, because apparently they only keep manifests. Right. <laughs> well, they did say they did say that this was like right in the aftermath of World War Three, and true. the that world was recovering, and yes. there was okay, a yeah, lot of fair. chaos. That's, that's fair. fair. That's fair. Although that said, our father was born in 1945 in Eastern Europe, and yeah. And there all are all the records kinds of, of that yeah. still exist. Like that is true. So, well, I don't know. The world is anyway. <laughs> world War Three might be a long war. So Wilson invites them down, and before they go, so Wilson, this is Wilson Granger. Troy yeah. just caution. She's like, something's up with this colony. It's it's there's something sketchy going on here. Yeah, and Riker probably remembers that in the last episode, he did not check with Troy before going down to a colony. So hopefully this time he remembers better. The Packlids. Oh. <laughs> last episode was the Packlids, yeah. Yeah, we, we did listen to Troy, and and in the last episode, uh, Jordy ended up having the crap kicked out of him. So she's, yeah. he's probably going to be a little bit more cautious. Yes. So Riker, Pulaski, and Worf beam down, and they are greeted by Victor Granger, who is the Minister of Health, and he is identical to Wilson. And he says that their arrival is serendipitous, but he doesn't explain why. He keeps saying, like, oh, I'll let the Prime Minister explain this. Worf and Riker kind of, they kind of hang back as they're being led to the Prime Minister's office, and they wonder if maybe... These two are twins, and then they pass by a, a a room. They pass by a room, and they see three identical women who are then joined by a fourth identical woman. And they're like, "Okay, there's something strange going on here." Because you know what the casting call for this episode was like. They're like, "Like, are you triplets or quadruplets? Yeah. Please yeah. come down to this recording studio." Do you think yeah. you don't think it was? I guess they're all standing right near each other. It can't have been shot with one actor. Yeah, not for that yeah. one. I didn't think about that. With the one with, they might have had only three of that one actor and have the other woman, like have her just walk around or one of them yeah. walk again. But yeah, it's, I think it's some yeah. of them are actual triplets. Oh, that yeah. makes sense. There's a really weird scene. I don't know if you noticed this. There's like basically Pulaski 
is scanning this random guy while she is pretending to check out this like cool sculpture. But the way, again, like everything is so poorly thought out. They couldn't have this guy doing something. He's just standing there. Like an like an like an NPC in a video game. He's just yeah. like literally <laughs> staring into the middle distance. <laughs> she's standing right in front of him and he's like staring into space as if he doesn't see her. Yeah. I think they wanted him to seem as creepy as possible. It's yes. so weird. They couldn't so give him like weird. a something to hold, like something to look at. <laughs> like yeah. Open the door for them or something. Like those four women were all like looking at the same screen, you know, bent over. Yeah. They enter the prime minister's office and Pulaski gets right to the point. She's like, is your entire population made up of clones? Clones? Clones. 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 <laughs> Is your entire population made up of clones, Prime Minister? Clones. 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 So Wilson has requested an urgent meeting and says that the people of Mariposa need help. That when the ship landed on the planet, the hull was breached and only five of them survived and they didn't want to give up. And they were scientists. So of course, scientists turned to cloning. Right, Jake? Yeah. I love how scientists are like, were they physicists? Were they chemists? Were they geneticists? Were like, what's a they were scientist? scientists. They're scientists. So they this can do all, do all the sciences. If all they the had science. needed to build a nuclear rocket, they could have done that too. You know but... for sure that if they did a flashback with this, they would definitely have been wearing lab coats. Yeah. <laughs> On their spaceship, to, yeah. They turn to clone. I mean, it is true that two women and three men is not a sufficient gene pool to build a society. It's absolutely the case that you can't, like... Can you explain explain why that's... Why is that worse than cloning? So there's um, a phenomenon called inbreeding depression. Uh, basically... <laughs> Sounds terrible. <laughs> it makes you, you really sad. It doesn't <laughs> Yeah, so it depresses your fitness, um, your biological fitness. So basically the idea is that in any population, there will be genes, um, there'll be copies of genes or versions of genes that are deleterious in some way, that are recessive. So you might be carrying one and not know it because you have a dominant version that isn't broken or isn't um, deleterious. Deleterious is like not good, right? Not good, yeah. When you have people with the same parents and grandparents interbreeding and interbreeding and interbreeding, what that does is it increases the chances of two of those recessive, like two copies of that recessive version meeting each other and being the only two copies in someone's offspring. Ah. When you're breeding with a bigger genetic diversity, that still happens sometimes, but it's less likely to happen over and over and over. So you end up with any recessive genes that are harmful. You end up with a higher proportion of the population has two versions of them, which means A, that they have whatever whatever illness that that gene causes, but also their children will necessarily carry the gene because it's the only thing they can pass on. And you do see this in sort of closed populations, religious groups, or just like small island populations uh, where like everyone who lives there has cleft palate or club feet or um, is more prone to some kind of cancer or whatever. When you're cloning, everyone has the exact same genetic makeup as their parents. So you're not sort of concentrating 
the harmful genes in offspring. Cool. So what you're saying is that the story of Genesis probably wouldn't have worked out right. No. <laughs> no, you need uh you need more than two people. Well, so it depends. Actually, I take that back. <laughs> okay. If it could have happened. No, no, no. I'm gonna I'm gonna say this. If Adam and Eve were perfect, if they had no deleterious alleles, no harmful versions of their genes, then they would be nothing to pass on to their offspring that would be harmful. Fascinating. Well, we are we, we will get an Eve reference later on. So would be yeah. would be low genetic diversity, but it wouldn't necessarily lead to inbreeding depression. Gotcha. All right. So the problem that Wilson has is that, like, I don't know, back in the day, because we're all old enough to remember this, you might have made lots of copies of the same VHS tape over and over. <laughs> oh, <and> over yeah. <laughs> and when you do that, it starts to fade. Like the picture gets, the color goes away, and it, it just doesn't look any good. And that's kind of what's happening. So they're, they have replicative yep. fading. So every time they're, they're cloning, you're making a copy of a copy, just like those old VHS tapes. And eventually you have a non-viable VHS tape. So I had never heard the term replicative fading in a biological context. So I uh, Googled this. Oh, is it real? No, every single, <laughs> every single hit was a reference to this episode. This episode, yeah. yeah except yeah. one like... hit, which was a reference to Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Oh. Which is apparently the origin of the term. I don't even remember there being cloning in Brave New World, but I did read it like 20 years ago. So I don't know. Fascinating. Um, Fascinating. But uh, I like that because in in the last episode, we were going on about the heterocyclic declination, yep. which is apparently a medical thing that comes from Star Trek. And now we've got replicative fading, which is not necessarily from Star Trek, but all of the hits lead you yeah. to this episode. Some kind of science yeah. fiction. No, there's yeah. no, like there are things you could think of like, um, you know, Muller's ratchet or telomere's shortening. Like there's there's things you could think of that it might refer to, but it's as far as I can tell, it's not a thing. So what they want is an infusion of fresh DNA. These VHS cassettes are worn out. They need some new film. They, they need, need some new, new film. Movies. And Riker is like, you cannot take my film. And this part, this is Riker interesting. Riker is so mad. He's so Riker. mad. And he's also like, I th- I would say he's rude. Like he's not. Yeah. You can say, no, you can't do that to me without being like, that's terrible. I can't even believe you would ask me that. Yeah. Right? Like what they're asking for at first, at least, is for consent to do this. And, you know, you can ask for things and people can say no to them. That doesn't end up happening here. But like this is part of what what bugs me about this episode in addition to everything else we've already talked about. But like <laughs> they say, they talk about how that's like, Riker's like, well, one William Riker is unique, but if you have a hundred, then it's no longer unique. And he's talking to someone of whom there are presumably hundreds. And then yeah. also Pulaski says no, Picard says no, and they don't ask anyone else. That's right, yeah. yeah. Like the, the They're not even from, can I please do this to I have to take this by force is just so broad that I can't even think of it, I can't even consider the ethical implications in either direction seriously because there are so many other options. Picard, Pulaski, and Riker are all so shocked. Like it's like they see the fact that this is a society of clones as a moral failing of that society. 
and they're so like maybe they were driven to it by necessity but they still think it's it's a moral failing they're so shocked that they're unwilling to even ask anyone else on the enterprise what i think is interesting about this is that i think it is in some way reflective of popular attitudes about cloning i don't i mean i was too young when this episode came out but certainly in the 90s when Dolly the sheep was cloned, it was a big deal biologically and scientifically. It was big yeah. news, but it was also like an enormous ethical controversy. Yeah. And I think there are certainly like, when it comes to human cloning, you know, important ethical questions to ask around like eugenics and, and uh, reproductive rights and whatever. And I think it's, it's a complicated ethical question, but just the fact of cloning period was viewed with a lot of suspicion in the 80s and 90s in a way that I think yeah. may have changed since then. So the attitudes that we see in this episode are maybe more shocking to us now than they would have been to an episode, to an audience when this yeah. aired. That's yeah, that, point, you think the audience might have been kind of on, on their side with this? Like maybe more and, so. It's yeah. baffling to me why they wouldn't be willing to share their genetic material or at least ask if anyone else is. To your point, Ruthie, I was going to say, it, it's interesting too. I didn't think about it in terms of, of the questioning. Like they're just, they're so repulsed by the question, which is interesting because it's one of the few points in this episode where consent actually is taken into account and yeah, they ask yeah. something before making a decision on behalf of an entire society. Uh, and, and Riker's still that upset. I also laughed at Riker's position about how it's important that there's only one Riker in the universe because that's <laughs> going to come back to bite him in the butt later yeah. on. <laughs> yes, I, yeah, I, I really liked that. <laughs> oh, if only you knew, Will Riker. If only you knew, Will Riker. It's not going to yeah. age so well. I also yeah. felt that there should have, like, there are other options, even if they, yeah, like, if what they do, what they're used to doing is cloning, but maybe someone would be willing to offer some genetic material to, like, reproduce with someone else's genetic material. Yeah, you know, like, like sperm those... and egg donations are options here that nobody brings up at any time. And this this existed in the 80s and 90s, right? Like that was a thing Absolutely. that people was was uh was IVF, I don't know, when did that start being a thing? I think IVF existed. I mean, certainly sperm donation has existed. Uh, let me look probably. up the history of IVF here very. Yeah, why it doesn't why does uh, it have to just briefly. be floating? Yeah, yeah. IVF. Yeah. IVF um was invented in like Okay, so in 1978, the first baby. So not that long before, like just like well, less like than a ten years before this episode years, yeah. aired. But IVF had existed for a decade, and you don't need IVF to make babies. Like you, there are people with uteruses. Right? Yeah, but it sounds like that's not an option here. It's not a thing. Well, it's not an option now. That's gonna ch uh, anyway. We'll get there. But it's <laughs> but yeah. the fact that nobody has been like we yeah. make sperm we make eggs we could give you those you know yeah yeah it's there's even like they're they're talking about how technologically advanced that society is and one of the other things i'm thinking of is I, i'm just checking this out right now some of the earliest research even into artificial wombs was being done back in the 1960s so that would have been another concept if they're like they're so because they seem to be very turned yeah. off on anything to do with the actual biological nature of reproduction outside of like cloning and clearly yeah. they're they already have some kind of kind of exo-womish type technology because as we were about to see so um that'd be something else as well i wonder if it's like, like jake you're talking about how it might be baked into the 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 culture at the time of the episode but i also wonder if it's kind of baked into the culture of the federation because 
we see the Federation has like a real kind of aversion to genetic anything as a yeah, result of the of the it wars. And DS9. so maybe that's some yeah. of the bias is being betrayed here by at least the human characters on board. But there may have been aliens that were totally willing to give their I mean, genetic maybe. material. And maybe they don't want that. Maybe they want a pure human society. I don't know. But I think well, if that was if that was the source of their objection, they would have stuff to say about the eugenics stuff that happens later like no right. we'll get to it but like nobody yeah. comments <laughs> on any of the like deeply troubling stuff that happens later on yeah. but anyway um i think that this irrational in my opinion aversion to being cloned exists and this unwillingness to consider other options exists purely to bring us to the next the next yeah. event in the episode yeah i i totally agree Wilson says, okay, well, if you're not going to give us genetic material, can you at least help us repair some equipment? And Pulaski is like, can I also go down to study you? I'm not going to help you, but can I at least study you? Which feels <laughs> a little rude. Uh, and she and she's like, I can't help you because I don't know anything about replicative fa- fading. And also fixing your equipment also won't help you very much. But anyway, that's what they do. Yeah. So down on Mariposa... Riker and Pulaski both enter Wilson's office and they say the repairs are almost complete. And then he gives a signal with his hands. I just want to point out that yeah. the the people who are, so they enter his office and there are some people standing in the office and it's that same man who was yeah. standing, staring into space earlier, now standing, staring into space in his office. <laughs> yeah. I also want to point out, this is the one black person on the, this colony. The, yeah. The, the one, one black, black person, person, all he gets to do is stand and stare. And they don't give him, not only do they not give him anything to do, they don't give him a single facial expression. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, his job is to just stand and be blank. It's so yeah. weird and so unnecessary. So strange. Yeah, that portrays the clones in and of themselves in, in not a great light. Because, I mean, I, I presume that you could have an entire society of clones and people could still be regarded as individuals and still have their own personality. But that's not how they portrayed this particular individual. I did get the impression, kind of, that the the Grangers are all, like, high-up government officials. So we got the Prime Minister and the Minister of Health. These mm. particular, the, the women that we see, they're all, they all seem to be, like, science-y people. They do stuff on computers this guy i don't know like security i'm not sure you know like yeah, it's like you maybe. you have the job of your type yeah i don't know it's a bit it's a bit weird ideal. anyway so as soon as wilson gives this hand signal someone shoots riker and pulaski and drags them off into a lab and then laforge enters and he's like hey i'm just looking for riker and pulaski and wilson says he hasn't seen them so clearly Something is up. Uh, in the next scene, Pulaski and Riker are lying on tables in the lab. Their eyes are open, despite creepy. the fact that they're clearly so unconscious. Yeah. The doctors are sticking what seem to be biopsy needles into their abdomens through their clothes, which <laughs> is just really weird. Again, like, why would you do it that way? It is weird. I don't know why I don't find the hypo sprays through the clothes to be weird, but I really found this through the clothes to be strange. Well, the hypo sprays, I feel like a lot of time, like, they're just getting a quick shot in their shoulder. They're wearing long sleeve shirts. It would be yeah. a pain to, like... It's like an EpiPen is... or something. You just got to get it in as fast as possible. But this is, like, they're unconscious. They are completely <laughs> at these people's mercy. They didn't, like, pull up their shirts. 
not because they're wearing onesies. They're wearing onesies, yeah. It's <laughs> they're wearing onesies. Can't. They're yeah. like, look, still, just, still. Hopefully we don't get any threads in with our genetic material right? that we're stealing. What a weird choice. And given how much of Brenna's midriff we saw earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. That is true. But now we're back at the Enterprise and LaForge enters looking for, or LaForge has, had been trying to find them earlier, right? So he yeah. enters now the sick bay and Pulaski and Riker are there. And he's like, what happened to you two? And they don't have any memory of any missing time, but they start thinking through their the events and they realize they can't remember uh, what happened to them after they entered um, the office. And so Pulaski starts scanning them and she's like, we're missing epithelial cells. And that yeah. the cells lining the stomach are the best choice for cloning. Is that the case? So there's, there's some truth to that. So epithelial cells are fully differentiated cells. They're not different from other cells for cloning. But I was actually looking into like, what cells do we use for various things, including stem cell stuff, which is one of the technologies that's used for cloning. In the epithelium, there is what are called basal cells, which are the cells from which new epithelial cells grow because your epithelium is on the surface of your skin or the inside of your intestines. So you're constantly shedding those cells. So you need a constant source of new ones. So the basal cells are stem cells in the epithelium. So they're less differentiated. It's easier to turn them into even less differentiated cells, ultimately to turn them into like, like something that can people. be any cell. Awesome. What's called a, what's called a pluripotent stem cell, which is a stem cell that can turn into any kind of cell. We'll get into how the cloning works in a second because it's nonsense in this episode. <laughs> but it looks like they did, in fact, get at least that a little bit right. So one thing I would just like to point out here, though, is that you would think that they would want to get samples from as many people as possible, right? To have, you know, not just to have two two more samples isn't necessarily going to be that much no. more helpful. It's interesting to me that they didn't take any cells from LaForge and it feels like a kind of perhaps unconscious on the part of the writers, but like ableist thing that like they, they're they not taking LaForge. They're not taking LaForge's cells because then that would give them blind people. I don't know it's if that's... It's consistent with the weird eugenics that comes later as well. It is. Absolutely. Just yeah. Like, just like we, they want to have like high quality humans only which again but they don't do any genetic recombination with their existing population they're just going to make more rikers yeah. and more pulaskis it's just yeah. it makes no sense yeah it's very strange i'm also just wondering for optics if they're like we can't have a consecutive episode where something else happens to jordy <laughs> yes. yes. right after what happened over the previous episode <laughs> fair enough fair enough so they go down to the lab riker pulaski and laforge they beam down and they find their fully adult clones growing so is this a society that never has children is that what we are to take from this this is not it makes no sense this is not <laughs> how cloning works you need a blastocyst and an embryo and a fetus and a baby and an eight-year-old and a teenager to get an adult you you need all those stages this, this is... definitely colored my understanding of cloning because I, I for a long time, because I, I think, you know, I saw this episode when I was quite young and then I didn't really engage with the topic of cloning until I think I was like a teenager. And I really thought that a clone 
was just a photocopy of a person. Like it's just yeah. you had one person and now you have two. A lot of sci-fi does that that way too. Yeah, it was very, very common. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so this is going to be someone that is Pulaski's age and someone that is Riker's age, just like sprung from this incubator. And, and they vaporize them. And I don't know how to feel about that. It's interesting. I feel like it's it's so weird because it betrays so much about the attitudes that existed at the time this episode was written. Because can you imagine an episode of Star Trek where someone has an abortion? Well, okay. Can I say something about that? Because apparently the writer of this episode, Melinda M. Snodgrass, got a lot of hate from anti-choice activists who when Riker says we have a right to determine what happens to our own bodies that made people angry she meant it as a pro-choice kind of thing like that was her way of putting pro-choice stuff in and I mean like I said things get changed after they get written I don't think this is exactly as she wrote it but she got a lot of people were upset that that a character would say that they should have a right to determine what happens to their own bodies that's interesting and the material of their bodies. I wonder if that's why the clones are adult. If they felt like it would be less mm. likely to sort of trigger the knee-jerk response to the idea of abortion. If they're killing underdeveloped humans that are shaped like adults rather than shaped like fetuses or babies. If right. there was yeah, some yeah. kind of, if that was an intentional choice to like stop their studio from getting bombed. Yeah, like their skin isn't fully formed so you can like see through it and... I honestly, I, I still have a hard time telling, like, which one's Riker and which one's Pulaski. Like, they don't... They look the same to me. I was almost like, they better make sure they're killing the right ones. These could be, like, other clones, like, yeah. like, from the original clones, but... Riker's clone should have had a beard. <laughs> Through his, like, translucent skin. It's yeah, just yeah, got these, like, beard growing. <laughs> he's like, that's my primary. <laughs> that's my distinguishing feature. That's, that's what makes me unique. So how do we feel about this? Like, do you... Do we feel that they they had a right to do what they did? Who are you asking about? Are you asking about the Mariposans had a right or the... No, but like to to the crew to come down and vaporize their growing clones. I think it's complicated. I mean, the clones, I think, are are depicted as not yet people, which I think is important to the Mm -hmm. question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And certainly the way in which the genetic material was harvested was not acceptable. Yeah. But I don't, and I I think I'm in a minority of people here broadly. I think that independent of the question of like Riker and Pulaski's bodily autonomy with respect to their epithelial cells, I don't actually think that we have a right to control our genetic material. Like, I don't think that these clones belong to Pulaski and Riker anymore. So Jake, just to like clarify, like if there was a way of cloning people through like you know, like if I could take a, a hair from, you know, that, that you shed and left on a chair near me and, and someone decided to clone you using that. As long so as you're... they don't expect me to parent that child, right. I don't yeah, think yeah. of that as a violation. Yeah, yeah. But I also, I know that I am very much in the minority and every friend that I have talked to about this feels like that would be a violation and they do have a right to, con- like, I understand that my feelings about this are not yeah, common. Yeah, yeah but I don't have an attachment to my genetic material. Yeah. I I really have a hard time with this because I kind of see what you're saying. Like it's, it's you, your genetic material 
ceases to be yours once it leaves your body. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, right? Like that's kind of yeah. how I, I also agree with what kind of Troy points out later, which is that these people are desperate and they're just looking for a way to survive. Yep. It just bugs me so much that this episode treats it as though there was this was their only option because it absolutely <laughs> shouldn't have been. And I would say like, if anyone is in the wrong there, it's the Enterprise crew for not offering other options. For not being willing to have the least conversation about how to solve right. this problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I, that's where I kind of get tripped up. I don't know if I, if I think Riker and Pulaski had, had a right to just stop these clones from becoming people. I'm an, I'm a squarely at, I don't know. What do you think, Matthew? I hadn't thought about what their stage of development is. So because they're growing as adults, I'm like, do they have the memories? Cause sometimes like they mm. would, but sometimes clones, mm. like when they make them, they are like, they have memories and stuff, but if they're not children, like if we're not raising children, then as are they just like childlike adults for a while? We don't go into all that. So it's, I don't know. So some of those things that would need context in order to know. Jake, I'm, I'm interested by your position that, that you don't feel that you have control over your genetic material. So then I'm thinking, do I? Like, do I feel that way? Part of me does, because I would like to know that if someone created another version of me, I feel like I should have some, I feel like I should have right over that. But then I don't know if I can argue that position. I think in this case, because it was like an assault on my body, to make that happen, then in this particular case, I would say, well, yeah, like, I feel like I do. I have some say in what's going on Mm. with this particular person. But if it were outside of that, like if someone had found my genetic material somewhere and then had created another version of me somewhere, I feel like we should have some conversation over why people are able to do that Mm -hmm. as well. So it's it's hard to say. Um, I understand that they're in a state of desperation. I think what I do appreciate about this is that after this happens, the crew, like Picard and the leadership are at least empathetic enough to not just then abandon them wholeheartedly. Because they, I think they had the right to at that point. They've like abducted members of the crew. But they're like, listen, we get that you're in this state of like survival mode and you're desperate. So maybe we can at least come up with another, like another way to fix this. And at least that I appreciate. Like, they kind of let all the other moral quandary of it sit, but at least they're like, oh, let's put that aside for a second because we will still try to help you. It's interesting to me that Troy is the only one who's like, look, guys, just because you think it's weird doesn't yeah. mean it's wrong. Yeah. 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 And I, I mean, I, I kind of love Troy. She gets to say, I think, a total of three things in this episode, and they're all very important. The first thing she says is you can't just beam the bring Lloydy up onto the enterprise because they're going to think they were abducted by aliens then she says there's something fishy going on down there be careful and then she says this last thing which i think is probably the wisest out of those three wise things which and and she's absolutely right like she says would would you would we do any less if we were in in that kind of position one thing that pulaski says though is like this is not a solution she says, like, if this will give so, you another 15 generations, but it's still, you're still, then you're still going to have this same problem. You're just kind of kicking it down the road. Right. So then Pulaski says the line that <sighs> makes me throw up in my mouth, where she's like, cloning isn't the answer. What they need is breeding stock. 
Yeah, when you start referring like, to people as stock, you know you need to way reevaluate to some... human beings. Yeah, like no, 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 and and it's it really I think is this it it par- participates in this intensely like colonial, and this I think mm-hmm. is part of why Cole Meany was right to be to find this mm-hmm. this episode objectionable. It's not just that it it sort of portrays irish people as stupid and and alcoholic and and so forth but also that like this attitude of like there are different there are some kinds of people and some kinds of people are good for being smart and other kinds of people are good for making babies and doing physical Mm -hmm. labor Mm -hmm. right like that that is really activated by this convert this line of pulaski's and the conversation that follows in a way that is totally unaddressed by the episode and any of the actors and yeah. or any of the the characters in it like they just say that and just leave it there like like these people yeah. are they're breeding are, stock are cattle basically yeah. yeah it also like not to get too in the weeds of current events because i sometimes it's just so upsetting but it is like it that's a an argument that has been made a, in favor of restricting access to abortion is like oh but then yeah. then we have all these wonderful children for white people to adopt <laughs> like it's kind you know like it's it's a very and and it's the same thing that who who does not either have the means or the desire to take care of a child basically it turns them into breeding stock yeah they, they will create children for other people and then like it goes on where troy says that the Lloydie have the energy and the drive and the clones possess she says emotional maturity I'm i don't buy that i don't buy that. no emotional maturity <laughs> on these clones yeah okay so she doesn't just say those three wise things she does say a fairly unwise thing as well but it's but it's still like back in it's in that same like there are two kinds of people there are people yeah. who matter and there are people who do work it's it's very icky yeah, and to to make that decision on behalf of everybody. Yeah, yeah. Like they don't they don't poll the bring Lloydy or the Mariposans for that matter to find out if this is a thing they want. Yeah. Well, and so then, so yeah, we go to we we end up in the observation lounge and they're meeting and it's Picard and Pulaski with Wilson Granger and Danilo Odell. Wilson is like, no way. These people are primitive, hostile, disruptive, and Danilo's like, don't do me any favors yeah fine he's like it's just and i mean i'm totally on of course like on the the bring lady side in this lady don't need the mariposans right like this the well, enterprise can drop them off anywhere they've yeah. got functioning society the only reason they had to leave was because their son was going to explode like they're fine actually without the mariposans they are the ones doing the mariposans a favor totally Although it also seems like they're doing the Enterprise a favor because the Enterprise doesn't seem to want to have to look for a... Like, this is also a thing. It just doesn't... It, none of this squares with what we know of these characters and yeah. the Federation and Starfleet that, like, oh, this will make our lives easier because we can just drop them off here instead of taking them to a starbase. It feels like the writers wanted to set up a, like, humorous, odd couple contrast between the, like, goats and hay and the... <laughs> computers and clones and just gave no thought to any of the social implications of what they're saying with this episode yeah Yeah. and it's it's interesting to have such a conversation or or discussion around like consent and choice for on an individual level but not on a Mm -hmm. societal level 
Yeah. And they, the, yeah. that is that, that that contrast is not obvious in the to the writers or to into the how they structured the plot. Yeah. Yeah. Like they're like Danilo and Wilson Granger are gonna make this decision on behalf of their whole populations. And let's be really clear about what this decision is, because eventually when Wilson comes around to it, Pulaski says that the Bringloidi are going to have to change their society. Because at, at first, like one of the problems that, that Wilson has is that he and his people are going to have to sexually reproduce with the Bringloidi. And that is something that they got rid of in their culture. And so at this point, it's just repulsive to them. Danilo was like, oh, it's not too hard. You just put two people together and let it happen. But then Pulaski says, well, you'll have to change too because monogamous marriage will not be possible. We have to broaden this genetic base. So each woman will have to have at least three children with at least three different men. So she doesn't, I paid attention to this because I wondered, she doesn't say has to. She says, ideally, each woman will have three children by three different men. That's still weird to me. It is. And it is very much treating women like incubators and treating everyone like livestock. Yeah. But I did pay attention to whether she said have to, and she at least okay. doesn't do that. All right. Fair enough. But still, it's weird. They gloss over the like, our society has eliminated sex and sexual reproduction so quickly. The idea of it is repulsive to every single person in that society. And they're like, eh, I'm sure you'll get over it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> also, considering like th- how carefully they tread around non-interference and prime directive <laughs> considerations when other societies, even when they are human, that in this case, they're like, whatever, just like slant, like basically destroy <laughs> the the fabric of two different societies because we got to save one of them, I guess. These decisions are just going to be made by a couple leaders and then we go to town. We don't even bring up the prime directive. Yeah. 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 There's a part where Picard points out that it is because Wilson, Wilson's like, you know, these these people are so different from us. And Picard points out that differences make people strong. And it it feels like he's talking about genetic diversity there. Like I, he's yeah. kind of like, yeah, and you you need that difference. Your society has yeah. not had that difference. But it's also true that this, you know, like the cultural differences make people, you know, make make societies, I think, much stronger. That particular point that Picard makes I think would land a lot better in a different episode yes yes so I I can see what they're trying to do but yeah Yeah. I can't I can't give him too much credit after everything else that's happened in this episode yes it's also like I I just and I biologist in me just can't stop thinking about the like logistics of this because there's 223 bring Lloydie right which is enough people for a for a like genetically functional population but barely Okay. And then there's, when they talk about the Mariposan population, at one point they say something about cities, right? So we're talking tens of thousands of people minimum, right? If there are cities, <laughs> multiple cities on this planet, probably more like hundreds of thousands or millions of people that are have a genetic, like, effective population size of five, right? <laughs> there's five human genomes in, yeah. and there's 223 people in the bring Lloydie. like what yeah yeah is the plan here exactly it'd be like a trill situation 
who gets yeah. to be who gets to be joined and who doesn't. yeah yeah i mean from a genetic point of view it doesn't matter because they're clones so i guess like find 600 of your millions of people who don't mind having sex and then they're the ones but like it's just <laughs> there's some serious fridge logic in this episode yeah yeah uh, we get this nice moment where Danilo spits on his hand to shake Wilson's. <laughs> Didn't mind that. <laughs> Wilson takes it. He takes it. He and I, I think what they're trying to symbolize here is that, like, your society is going to be swapping fluids now. So get used to this. <laughs> Let's shake on it. So we go back to Cargo Base 7. Danilo finds Brenna and tells her what's going on while Wilson kind of looks around. He sees this pregnant woman holding a goat and he seems fascinated by both i guess he's never he wouldn't have ever seen a pregnant person or perhaps an animal before this is the thing is he's like baffled by everything and like do the mariposans not have agriculture where does their food come from like (laughs) they clone it what (laughs) what is happening here yeah, there are actually some pretty sinister implications going on over there. How do they have cities, but they don't have crops? They don't have hay. They don't have spinning wheels. You can't actually have cities without also having farms. Unless they have, they also have uh, replicators. We don't know. We don't know how that, how uh, their maybe they did. Works. Maybe they had replicators. Yeah, maybe they have replicators. I don't know how, how, did they have replicators in the 22nd century? Oh, probably not. Maybe they developed them by now, though. If they're like- They're scientists, society. remember. They're scientists, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's someone yeah. in lab coats making food somewhere. But Brenda starts yelling and she says about the grandiose, de- that men make grandiose decisions, but never stop to consider how they will affect the women or anybody. Which I She's think is not wrong. She's not yeah. wrong, right? Like this is, yeah. this is what's happened through this whole episode. And so I, I reminisce it since we, you know, there's obviously themes here around abortion, choice. Yeah. And I've seen several times images posted of legislatures that are making these kinds of decisions that are entirely rooms of men. Yep. And we've seen that happening here as well. Yes. And she says, like, she's not sure if this is what she wants. And Picard says, well, you know, he's not going to make her. She can stay on the Enterprise. But, like, what a choice. Yeah, leave your entire society or... Or three husbands. Three husbands. But then she's like, well, he seems like a fancy husband. Yeah, well, (laughs) she got over that really fast. Like, listen, we need to end the episode in two minutes, okay? Yeah, basically. (laughs) This is... This is my pet theory. I remember I said put a pin in her her and Riker, her sort of aggressively seducing Riker. Yeah. Is my pet theory is that whole business with Riker is to establish that she's a slut early on so that the oh, audience God. will swallow this ending. Oh, uh, God. Yeah. I, I, one thing I was thinking of that business with Riker is maybe his genetic material is going to end up on that planet. Oh, <laughs> Oh, that's going to come up in season four of Picard. That's what that's going to be. Oh, I feel like, I don't know. I feel like Riker Riker spreads enough of his seed around, pardon the expression, (laughs) that like surely he's got his like, he's got his, he's got his reproductive business on lock. When you look up, uh, when you look up cosmic panspermia in the dictionary. Yes, we're oh, there's a picture of. It's Riker. It's Riker. <laughs> That's a very good joke, Matthew. I don't like this, but I also do that she approaches Wilson 
and the camera cuts away just as she's lifting up her skirt to show off her feet again. <laughs> I didn't notice that. This is this is clearly the bring Lloydy way of flirting is to talk about your it's dirty really funny. Feet. Man, if Riker didn't pick up at those cues, I've got news for you when it comes to Wilson. <laughs> He's going to be like, no, I here's the bucket. Here's the sponge. Here's the soap. Yep. He's like, we don't we don't have showers with water in our society because we're scientists we're scientists yeah Yeah, we're above that yeah the end well there we go that's the episode (laughs) we we started at the head and worked our way down (laughs) (laughs) gross so the title of the episode is up the long ladder which jake pointed out to me i didn't this didn't register to me at all that it is like a dna kind of joke that's how i Um, read it but it's also of course course, eh? There is also um, a, an Irish, like, nursery rhyme type thing. And I don't I, – I did some digging around this, and I can't fully tell if this is specific to one nursery rhyme or if it gets kind of tacked on to other nursery like, – like a bunch of Irish nursery rhyme. The one I found was called Are You Ready for a War? And it's like a song that has a tune similar to but not – entirely like London Bridge is falling down and it has stuff between like the English soldiers and the Irish soldiers the ending of it takes a totally different rhythm and it goes up the long ladder and down the short rope to hell with King Billy and God bless the Pope if that doesn't do it we'll tear him in two and send him to hell with his red white and blue it's an anti-English you don't say So yeah, that's also where the title comes from. I don't see that one fitting. I did notice. I don't know if this there's any significance to this. I mean, uh, Patrick Stewart has been playing, you know, was cast as Picard presumably long before this episode was written. I did sort of notice when they first beamed them up and Danilo O'Neill, O'Dell was like, you know, making decisions for without so much as a buy your leave. And then Picard opens his mouth and a British act, like an English accent comes out. <laughs> I stand by my position that this is, a bad idea poorly executed <laughs> and i love it <laughs> i love this episode i i think there's there's good stuff in here to talk about like honestly like once we get into the meat of it there's like okay there's a lot of interesting implications here but it's couched in such an odd episode i just think it's a shame that the episode doesn't engage in any of those conversations i know right i, know. I feel though like that's what we've kind of realized in recording the podcast that we always have the longest conversations about the episodes that engage the least with their material. Yeah, because we got to do it on their behalf. Like, Here's what we <laughs> yeah, have to talk so. about in this episode. Yeah. Any any final thoughts before we close out? H- humans are not breeding stock. <laughs> Don't refer yeah. to them that way. Yeah, that's a good point. Humans are not. Yeah, if, once when you're calling people breeding stock, you have you gone wrong. Take a step back and take a step back. All right. Well, I think we did it. I think we made it all the way through. Thanks so much for this uh, science help, Jake. That was very- Thanks for having me. Very helpful. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of With the First Link. If you liked what you heard, please feel free to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast provider of choice. Our cover art was created by Nathan Nunn, and you can find more of his work at nathannunn.ca. Our theme song is An Amazing Adventure by Flame Lion Studio. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at FirstLinkPod or send us an email at FirstLinkPod at gmail.com to tell us all about your feelings about your own genetic material. I'm Ruthie. I'm Jake. And I'm Matthew. 
and I'm Matthew, and I'm Matthew, and I'm 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 and